and the accompanying commentary sounds familiar, it should. For many of the same people who argued for the war in Iraq are now making the case against the Iran nuclear deal. You're listening to the news on RTHK. for the last three to five years. Foreign financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning. This is your business breaking news on Thursday the 6th of August on RTHK Radio 3's Money for Nothing. And I'm Richard Harris. Your business headlines for this morning. Standard Chartered and Disney earnings disappoint. European markets are perky as SockGen earnings please. China launches 1, million, 1 trillion renminbi of infrastructure bonds to support the economy. And there's huge demand for the Hong Kong government's inflation-linked bonds. And in other news, if you're the boss, beware. U.S. Company, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the U.S. market regulator, voted by three to two yesterday to require companies to disclose the pay difference between chief executives and their average employee. They're hoping to close the gap between the workers and the guys who sign the checks. Well, good luck with that. Today, the earnings season continues with more news from the world's titanic companies and how the stock markets reacted to them. From New York City, we have Dr. Michael Scholl of U.S. hedge fund Market Field Asset Management, who's our commentator today on the China and Hong Kong markets. Then we review the LIBOR trading story from the ethics angle. Concerted efforts to influence LIBOR, and you know, although I was operating within a system which was commonplace, you know, I was someone who was a serial offender within that. That's the voice of jailed trader Tom Hayes, voiced by an actor. Paul Smith, president of the CFA Institute, that's the Chartered Financial Analyst Institute, is in to talk about the LIBOR rigging and modern training in ethics in financial services. And I'm very pleased to introduce our guest host today, who's back with us after a short break. It's the good doctor, Dr. Enzio van Fahl. Good morning, Enzio. Good morning to you, Richard. Enzio, you're a PhD in economics, and I, oh, I need one at the moment, because um, the Bank of England is going to do something very novel. As you know, interest rate decisions and the minutes of how they decide them and inflation forecasts, all of these things are all published piecemeal by central banks at the moment. But the Bank of England's going to now bundle it up and do it all once a month. Uh, Jonathan Ferrers of Bloomberg is going to tell us how it works, and after that, tell me what you think. Starting on August 6th, it will simultaneously publish its policy decision, minutes, including votes, as well as any new forecast covering every facet of the UK's economy. The instantaneous unveiling means investors will have all of the information in hand within seconds to wade through all at once. It's an unprecedented move for a major central bank. Here's how it will all go down. Officials on Threadneedle Street will gather on August 5th to be briefed by staff and then vote. The decision, together with everything else, will be announced the following day at noon, giving you 45 minutes to digest all of the details before Governor Mark Carney begins his press conference. So, Enzio, I think it was one of your uh, former compatriots, Otto von Bismarck, who said that taxes and sausages shouldn't be seen to be made. I just wonder if it's the same with monetary policy. Should we really have all this information? I really think that it's not information, it's data, Richard. What I mean by that is that if you have a swamp of numbers released, who in, on earth can really digest all of this stuff in one go um, the markets really don't work that way from my years of sitting, particularly with traders, 
and at the risk of sounding like an SX car salesman, I just think it's too much, inf- too much data and too little information. So they're going to blind us with science. As, we ha- as, as economists always do, yes. Yeah. Anyway, move on with the news. The dollar and short-term Treasury bonds were hit by FedSpeak. And as you heard yesterday on Money for Nothing, Dennis Lockhart, the president of the Atlanta Fed, said he would support a September U.S. interest rate rise. U.S. equities were broadly positive on the back of an advance of the tech sector. The S&P rose a third to 5,140 points last night to just under the... uh, And the Nasdaq index was up two-thirds of a point as heavyweight Apple gained ground for the first time in six sessions. My former colleague at Citigroup, Tobias Leskovich, who's the chief U.S. strategist there, has been describing what he puts into his model for the stock market. We look at oil prices. We look at retail money market flows. We look at um, things like the survey work in investors' intelligence, the American Association of Individual Investors, put-call ratios, the premiums you're willing to pay for put versus a call, you know, how deep in your pocket are you willing to dig to actually buy that protection. Um, and we meld all of this down together. And right now it's signaling about a 90% probability of markets being higher 12 months from now. The, the norm or the average is 74% of the time markets are higher if you look over history. So, uh, Enzio, Tobias puts all this information into a pot and uh, stirs it around a little bit like the witches in Macbeth um, and comes out with a view that's actually quite bullish. What do you think of these market models? The models themselves, having been trained under von Hayek, are a little bit dubious because things constantly change and there are many, many assumptions built into the models. But having said that, one has to have a framework within which to think. Ours happens to just be a very simplistic economic clock off which we tell the economic time. And we believe that the – well, we is me, frankly – believe that the economic time continues improving in the U.S., um, and that's indeed why the Fed is going to be tightening in September, precisely because the economic time is improving. So we would agree with um, Tobias's model from a much more sort of user-friendly perhaps angle. Hmm. So they can be useful and they do give us um, a little bit of a guide. Stocks were fairly happy in the Eurozone last night as the blue chip Euro stocks uh, 50 index rose 1.6%. The FTSE index rose a percent to 6,752, boosted by better than expected results from Legal and General and the London Stock Exchange. Mining shares did better as commodity prices stabilised across the board. Yesterday's shares in Shanghai closed 1.7% down at 3,694 due to profit-taking after the big rise on Tuesday. Hong Kong rose slightly and closed 0.4% higher at 24,514. The 10-year Treasury yield crept up uh, to 2.27%. And in fact, the spread or or the difference between US and German two-year bond yields are now the most since 2007, and that's helping to push the dollar to just short of a 12-year peak. Euro is trading currently unchanged at uh, 1.09, as is the pound of 156. Asia-focused Standard Chartered Bank reported pre-tax profits fell 44% to 1.82 billion as higher charges for bad loans hit profits. Revenue too was down 8% for the first half of 2015. But as to illustrate how much better things seem to be in Europe at the moment, French bank Société Générale reported better earnings than were expected, which was greeted well as the SOC-Gen shares jumped 8% in Paris. The government's fifth batch of inflation-linked bonds for retail investors, or I-bonds, has been three and a half times oversubscribed. The bonds are popular because interest will be paid every six months at a rate linked to Hong Kong's inflation. 
All applicants will get a minimum of $10,000 worth. Uh, and the 570,000 applications for more than that lot, for a board lot, will be entered into a ballot. The I-bonds will be issued on Friday and listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange next Monday. Enzio, what's your view on inflation-linked bonds? I think that they're quite sensible, except, of course, that inflation itself is a bit of a chimera. It's not really what we think. My view is that Hong Kong's inflation is much higher because we have such a rigged economy here than the numbers would um, allow us. But I think that particularly for the investor at large, this is at least something which will probably continue, frankly, outperforming the MPF funds. Well, it's a bet on inflation going up, isn't it? So yes. uh, that's that's what people are really... Keeps your real rates constant at least, yes. That, that's your real right. returns. And your yield's probably a little bit higher than you can get elsewhere. Well, and it, there's also a safety element involved. I, I don't think the government's going to be issuing trash. And so I think that that's quite useful, particularly, again, for the investor at large who really just wants to get a little bit of income off the money, given that the banks don't provide any um, and the sadly, a lot of the MPFs are doing not so well at present. Mm. OK, China's authorised its policy banks to issue new bonds in order to plough money into infrastructure spending after the market route of the last few weeks. A first batch of 300 billion renminbi out of a planned 1 trillion renminbi will soon be issued by policy banks that were recapitalised this spring. It will be invested in housing, pipeline infrastructure and other projects. Now, on the line from New York City, we've got Michael Scholl, who's chairman of Market Field Asset Management. Good evening, Michael. Good evening. Good. Thanks for staying up for us. Um, Not that late for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. You guys work around the clock. Um, and as, I guess so, as you also are looking pretty closely at the Hong Kong China markets. Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, we, we have reasonable exposure to the uh, H-listed mainland shares and, and some Hong Kong equities as well. And, uh, you know, the big question is, uh, have we just experienced the sort of great top of a the sort of terminal top of a bull market, or, or is this just a really violent correction uh, in a, a sort of in a longer term investment opportunity? And, and you know, our feeling is, you know, you can never be sure of these times, but it, it feels a little bit more like the latter than the former. Are you drawing a distinction between China and Hong Kong? You know, there are differences. I mean, we, we have a. We've always had a deep preference for Hong Kong listings rather than the mainland because, you know, there have always been issues with sort of the standard of regulation on the mainland and, and you know, that really came to light again in that, in that big correction. And we're always a little bit happier having, uh, you know, institutions as our bedfellows in, a, in an investment as opposed to a very retail trade. You know, there's nothing wrong with retail investors, but, but they do tend to be a little bit more enthusiastic on the way up and, and panicked on the way down. So, you know, for all those reasons, we, we prefer the H market generally, and particularly right now when you have a valuation, a valuation discount of, you know, on average about 40% between the H shares and the A shares. So, you know, I think all of those make, make I think, the H share market a, a more attractive destination. Michael Enzio von Fahl here in Hong Kong. Um, good uh-huh. evening to you. Can you explain to our listeners why there is this huge discount of the 40% between the, in other words, that the H shares are 40% cheaper than the A shares? Well, I mean, if you think about what an equity is, it's a sort of claim on a company's, uh, it's a claim on a company's assets. And that the strange situation you have in China and Hong Kong is you have the same claims trading at very big different, very big differences, and, and 
there's no simple um, ability to arbitrage the gap. Um, so there's no simple mechanism. You know, we're used to dual listing, say, between London and New York, where it's exactly an equivalent uh, structure, and, and you can literally buy the paper in New York and ship it to London and transfer it into the same, you know, into the same equity in London. So in that situation, you know, you'll have very small spreads between the two. But in a situation where there's no legal right to turn an A share into an H share, there's a somewhat tenuous link put in place between Shanghai and Hong Kong in the last few months, which, you know, in normal markets seem to be, seem to be allowing that premium to close. But in, in the sort of craziness of the last few weeks, you, you know, you literally have two separate markets, two separate regulators, and two separate investor bases. You know, the Chinese market is dominated by local investors, and the Hong Kong version of the same equities are dominated by international investors who are frankly petrified in general of emerging markets right now. So, so you know, in times in which the preferences of the two investor bases look very similar, those two markets will trade fairly closely to one another. But if you have a real big difference in the balance between fear and greed on the mainland and fear and greed amongst international investors, you can have the current situation, and, you know, it can get wider. In, in 2007, the premium, I think, got above 100%. It was certainly somewhat wider than 40%. So, you know, we're, we're, at a, we're at an extraordinary level, but it's been even more extraordinary at other points in time. When you look at the markets, do you look at yep. um, Hong Kong separately from China, or do you say, well, look, this is, these are all Chinese companies. We've got a specific kind of company in Hong Kong. You know, for instance, we've got Tencent, Baidu. We've got uh, companies in New York like uh, Alibaba, JD. Uh, and we've also got uh, select companies in, in China, the Asia. Do you look at your portfolio in the round, or are you, are you really still sticking it? Sure. Hong Kong I mean, as a look, I, I think we're, we're, we are macro investors, so we do tend to simplify. And, and to us, there's a somewhat binary decision as to whether any exposure in China makes sense or not. But once you've decided to get exposure, I mean, you know, you have a choice of index-type exposure, uh, which in Hong Kong's case is going to give you a lot of, a lot of financial exposure, um, or, um, you, know, a more, you know, a more targeted exposure. I mean, our, you, know, our, you know, what we've done is you know, something fairly straightforward, which is combine index-type exposure with some individual names, and that's allowed us to round out not only financial exposure, but some exposure to China's technology companies. And, you know, every country, every, every country has a range of risk and opportunities embedded in it. I, I wouldn't simply talk about the U.S. equity market or the Chinese equity market, but at these sort of great moments of chaos, the differences between different sectors really gets, uh, you know, really gets kind of thrown out of a window. And, and either there's a continued exit of capital from this space, in which case it's going to be an unhappy ending, or there'll be a period of volatility followed by an entrance of new capital, in which case there'll be a much happier ending. Mm. Michael, just on that, what would your, for our listeners again out there, what are your favorite sectors and what are your least favorite sectors in China, particularly as regards eight shares here in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, we don't, as I say, we're much more simple folk than that. Yeah. I mean, for us, just simply making the decision that we're willing to be there is a big decision. But, I, I, you know, I do think that, that um, obviously the financial shares are, are the ones that look the cheapest. So if the big question is, are they going to be overwhelmed by a wave of, 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 of number-forming loans? Um, are they going to see a massive compression of net interest rate margins? You know, if, if, if they can dodge both those bullets, well, you know, you've got PEs in, in the mid, uh, you know, in, in mid-single digits and, and, and yields in mid-single digits in some cases as well. And that, that's a pretty attractive combination. I mean, what I would say about that sector 
is at least you're being paid to take a big risk. You're taking a big risk, but you're being paid a reasonable price to take to take a big risk. And yeah. That's not an unreasonable combination. No, no, that's where it should be. Um, tell us what do you think about how the Chinese have actually handled the recent manoeuvres? I mean, this announcement today... Yeah, I mean, I mean a, a, you know, a billion renminbi into infrastructure. Isn't this where the whole issue with local government debt started in the first place? And you can't cure debt with more debt. You know, it's funny, three, four years ago, I was at a China conference and everybody was excited about infrastructure spending. And I said, look, the only thing you can guarantee with infrastructure spending is that you're going to have a big maintenance bill going forward. So it doesn't in itself, you know, it doesn't in itself um, necessarily make money for, you know, for investors. But, but what I will say, you know, the one positive thing about what's happened in China in the last few weeks is that their credit markets have stayed calm. And, and generally, one of the most important differences, you know, when you get these periods of really great volatility, there's a big difference between equity markets going down a lot and credit markets dislocating. So, you know, I think that the, the, the one good thing in China in the last few weeks is that credit markets have stayed sane, money markets have stayed sane. You know, I've said before that I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the amount of regulatory interference, uh, both within the equity market and, and, and some of these plans. I think what's been missing it's just straightforward monetary easing. Uh, mm. You know, I think the, the PBOC has plenty of scope to both reduce interest rates and... And, 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 and they've said they, they, they won't do that. Um, uh, you're yeah. talk, talking about uh, intervention by governments in the economy. Um, just before you go, uh, when do you think interest rates are going to go up? U.S. interest US rates? U.S. interest rates are going to go up. You know, I think in the absence of a market correction, September, if, they have a, if, we, if we're in the middle of a market correction, then they'll wait. But, but all things being equal, September. Good. Oh, so you're, uh, you're looking on the early side. Feels very late to me, but yes, I guess so. Enzio, how about you? I'm very much with Michael. I've been braying for some time that September would be the date, and certainly with Mr. Lockhart coming out as a bellwether of the Fed in the in the U.S., uh, particularly in Texas, um, coming out and saying that he felt also that things are going to be looking on the up in September. Really, the number that you want to watch out for is tomorrow's payroll reports. If the U.S. comes out with job creation higher than 225,000 in July, then you can pretty much bet that there will be a rate hike in September. Mm, good. Okay. Well, all, all eyes on the numbers. Well, Michael, we very much appreciate having you, you with yes. us today. It's Michael Scholl, Chairman of Marketfield Asset Management in New York. I was born in 1990 and have grown up with the basic law. Over the past 25 years, I learned about one country, two systems, and gained a better understanding of mainland Hong Kong relations. I witnessed our return to the motherland and the successful implementation of the basic law, which provides us with unique strengths. With the basic law, I believe Hong Kong will continue to be prosperous and stable, forging ahead towards a brighter future. The 25th anniversary of the basic law promulgation. Well, it's now 8.22, and we heard earlier in the week Tom Hayes was sentenced by a London court to 14 years' imprisonment for his part in the LIBOR rigging scandal. The sentence was high because he pleaded not guilty, even though he had made statements like this. I probably deserve it sitting here, and you know, I made concerted efforts to influence LIBOR, and you know, although I was operating within a system which was commonplace, you know, I was someone who was a serial offender within that. At the end of the day, my trading book directly benefited from that. 
Hayes cajoled and bullied his way through the markets. The BBC's Sean Farrington says how. Tom Hayes became famous for his messages sent in online chat rooms to other traders along the lines of, if you keep fixes changed, I'll do a humongous deal with you. During the trial, jurors heard that he promised to pay a broker up to $100,000 to keep the LIBOR rate, in his words, as low as possible. Well, there are more individuals in front of the judges coming up with the potential of big sentences to come. And we thought we'd take another angle on the whole issue of this by having a chat to Paul Smith, who's the global CEO of the Chartered Financial Analysis Institute. Good morning, Paul. Morning, Richard. How are you? Very well, thanks. Um, The CFA, I know, has very strong views in terms of certainly how their members should be behaving. Um, It strikes me as being slightly unusual in this day and age where compliance has been quite tight now for quite a time, even before the global financial crisis, that individuals would have been acting in this way as regulated individuals who have done all the exams and and been to the various seminars about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you would think, Richard, but uh, uh, I'm not sure that the... Uh, that that's necessarily a, a good connection. I think the challenge really is that the people that we bring into the industry are types that will always try to game the system. I, I think that's the um, the reality. I think we need to work harder on the inputs. Sure, we can we can strengthen compliance compliance frameworks after the fact of of hiring someone, but if we continue to to hire people who have uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, sort of borderline psychopathic tendencies at times, then you're going to get very bad results. Enzio? Yeah, speaking with one psychopath here, Paul, <laughs> uh, you, of course, not I me, want um, I wanted to just ask if you think that with increased job insecurity, the psychopaths on the trading floors will actually mushroom. It seems to me as if regulations are a little bit like fish that are like rocks, that the players circumvent the rules like fish navigate rocks. And I'm kind of wondering whether we're not going to get a lot more fish coming into the trading market because of the internet, etc., displacing job security. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's right, and I think also that there's been some very bad signals sent out recently, you know, particularly in the UK. I'm um, uh, surprised at uh, Martin Wheatley's departure from the FCA there. I thought that was a very bad signal to the market that, uh, uh, you know, the UK political pressure on financial institutions to behave better has been relaxed. I think that sends an extremely bad signal to people who are working uh, in the industry. I think it becomes harder and harder to regulate as it gets um, more and more complex. And so regulation is only part of the part of the issue. I think, you, as I say, I think you do have to address the types of people we bring into this industry, and I don't think enough is being done to think that through. But how would we do that, Paul? Yeah, because exactly. it's... Um, you, you know, it's easy to say and do uh, do psychological tests and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, when you're on the heated uh, environment of a trading room and your boss is shouting at you, it's pretty difficult to to really do the right thing. It, it is, and I think you know that's the that's the challenge with the industry that we're in. And it's not. I mean, it's not as simple. Obviously, I'm I'm, I'm oversimplifying. It's not as simple as, as just addressing the inputs. Of course, you have to address the regulatory environment. Of course, you have to address culture and behaviours within the companies themselves. Uh, I mean, all of these pieces fit together to to make the jigsaw that that hopefully adds up to a healthier industry that's geared much more towards um, delivering results for um, the shareholders and investors. And I, th- I think that's the final you know, p- 
point that I want to make. I, th- I think there's a there's a fundamental conflict at the heart of our industry, uh, which is whether you're a depositor in a bank or an investor in a mutual fund, you're only one of the stakeholders in that transaction. There's also the employers, the, uh, the employees, and there's the shareholders of the businesses that... Um, uh, you know, which are now in the public sector of all of our financial services um, um, major groups, and so the, the whole industry is actually riddled with conflict that um, uh, that doesn't help. Uh, and obviously, there are uh, lots of uh, lots of money at stake as well. So, mm. so the whole thing is a, is, is a very volatile uh, mixture, which which doesn't have one simple silver bullet solution. Now, the CFA designation, Chartered Financial Analyst, which is is something that um, uh, most analysts uh, as, aspire to these days through hard work and exams. What are you doing within the CFA in terms of? Uh, instilling into people a kind of ethical sense that hopefully should carry them through? Well, we, the, the exam has, uh, at each level, each of the three levels, um, uh, 10 to 15% of content at each level based around business ethics and essentially framed around putting investors' interests above, uh, above one's own. So the, the, the core of our teaching always has a very strong ethical component and then after you qualify as a CFA, uh, you have an annual attestation uh, that you've behaved in accordance with our professional conduct principles, and then we have, obviously, significant continuing professional education. Around that, we do a lot of work uh, with the industry uh, and regulators working on uh, issues like conduct. Um, so so uh, it's both with the individual and also through the regulators as well? Very definitely. I mean, we're a professional body. We're not um, just an exam provider. The exam provider piece is just to qualify people to enter the profession. So our job really is to is to work with regulators and with employers to try to raise the standards of the industry. And I think, okay. Paul, I, I Paul think that, we'll, yeah. um, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for coming on. Much appreciated. That's Paul Smith, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the CFA Institute, and he's based in Hong Kong. Um, Enzio, just before we go, what's your feeling on the markets? What's your big tip for, the, um, for say, the rest of the summer? Well, at the risk of providing insights of an SX car salesman, I think that one can still be long of the U.S. dollar because of those rising U.S. rates. I think that the economic time in America will continue improving. Thus, I think that market is a buy. I also think that the Hong Kong Chinese markets are also looking attractive, particularly because there will be more stimuli coming through. So you're looking... um relatively on the on the bullish side. Um, yes. Good. Yes. Well, thanks for, for joining us too. That's Andrew Van Fahl, our regular guest host. And thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing today. Thank you, Richard. Um, the weather today will be mainly fine and very hot. Maximum temperature will be about 34 degrees. Isolated thunderstorms later. The outlook, remaining very hot in the next couple of days, but a few showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. And the temperature of the observatory, 29 degrees, and the relative humidity is 78%. Stay with us for Peter Lewis and Biz Extra, and here's Samantha Butler with the news. 
The people of the Japanese city of Hiroshima have observed a minute silence to mark the 70th anniversary of the first atomic attack in human history. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and foreign delegates were among the tens of thousands gathered in Hiroshima's Peace Memorial Park. About 140,000 people are estimated to have died when a U.S. aircraft dropped a bomb which incinerated the city center with a wall of heat up to 4,000 degrees Celsius. Amiko Yamanaka was an 11-year-old schoolgirl in Hiroshima at the time. It was an intensive light, and I thought the sun was falling down, and in a moment there was a huge blast of air. I couldn't breathe. People were running and tearing their burnt skin. The Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak has confirmed that a piece of aircraft debris found on an Indian Ocean island is from the missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. He said aviation experts who examined the wreckage had conclusively confirmed it was part of the aircraft, which disappeared in March 2014. Mr Najib said he hoped the news would help the victims' families find closure. The burden and uncertainty faced by the families during this time has been unspeakable. It is my hope that this confirmation, however tragic and painful, will at least bring certainty to the families and loved ones of the 239 people on board. A search and rescue operation is continuing in the Mediterranean.